Welcome to Teachers Care Society and the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I'm joined by Adriana Cullen, a middle school teacher from Vancouver, Canada, as we'll be discussing bridging the generation gaps in the classroom for both teachers and students. So without further ado, let's jump right in. This guest is Ariana Colon, a middle school teacher from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Happy New Year's and welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. We're going to have a lot of fun today. So it's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. As it is for me. <laughs> so how was your winter break? And I guess even now, uh, how was your New Year's? Uh, I think just like most teachers, uh, it definitely was not long enough. I think kind of January 4th rolled around and I was like, really? Already? Uh, we definitely, at least my colleagues and I felt that we needed another week just to catch up because this year has been so uh, just different than any other year. Um, I think we found ourselves a lot more tired uh, and this week was a long one for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely agree with you about being uh, tired. So for me, you know, work all weekdays and sleep all weekends. But this uh, break, I slept all weekdays and slept all weekends as well. Yeah, it was a, definitely I would agree. My break was a lot of catching up on sleep uh, that I definitely missed this year. And especially this time of year. I mean, where you are in L.A., it's very different. But in Canada, it gets dark really quick. We don't have a lot of sunlight uh, throughout the day. It's often dreary. And that obviously makes it a lot harder to get through the day because it just feels blah. <laughs> uh, and so we're officially in 2021. So mm. is there anything you're looking forward to the most in this year? Hopefully uh, the vaccination and sort of getting over this whole COVID pandemic and hopefully not having to wear masks because I really feel that it limits a lot of what we do in the classroom and just communication, being able to see people again, being able to attend weddings again and sort of get getting back to life pre-pandemic if it's going to happen like that. I mean, I know uh, or I can at least imagine that the world will be a little different, but I am looking forward to a little bit more of normalcy. Hopefully that that happens this year. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here in, uh, I guess in California, California, even just the LA area, mm -hmm. as far as uh, the way they're rolling out the vaccine, they have different tiers. And I guess they push the teachers up um, towards the higher tier. I don't know how it, it is in Canada as far as, far as like, who gets it first. <laughs> Interesting. Um, first is healthcare workers and basically anyone who can administer the vaccine. Uh, and then we have a lot of indigenous communities right now getting vaccinated as well. Um, front uh, line workers in terms of healthcare workers, um, seniors homes, uh, those sort of populations are getting first access. Those I would say are tier one. Tier two does include teachers, but that's not projected to sort of start happening until April for us. Um, and then 
that just depends on how efficient they can be with actually administering it and everything that goes along with it. So we shall see. Uh, okay. Yeah, for here, I hope they do it. Uh, I hope they, uh, they really do rush it out because the next big thing is, uh, is like the spring break. And so I know a lot of people will travel for that too. Um, yeah. But yeah, hopefully Definitely. it rolls out quickly. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And then before the winter break, I know you actually did a lot of activities about different holidays. And mm-hmm. I think you introduced Hanukkah to a first grade class. And I think you had dreidel games, right? Can, can you tell me about that? I did. So I'm, I should actually just sort of back up a little bit. So I'm part-time TOC or teacher on call. And then part-time, uh, I have my own classroom. Uh, so I do a job share with another teacher. So the dreidel game I did with my class, quote unquote, like my class that I do the job share with, um, they are grade seven and they didn't, they didn't get the opportunity to really have a lot of the things that they would have normally had, um, in terms of Christmas or holiday celebrations that they've had since kindergarten. Um, and when I do sort of the holiday season, I do try and kind of decenter uh, Christmas, especially because where I work, the population and the demographics, majority of these students don't even celebrate Christmas. Um, but it is something that is just so pushed and so ingrained um, in the society that I'm really trying to challenge that. Um, so this year that happened to look like introducing aspects of Hanukkah um, and my partner is actually Jewish. So it for me, it's not coming from a place of tokenism or cultural appropriation. I'm able to sort of do it in an authentic way and with research and with tangible help from, um, you know, my partner who is Jewish and, and I'm able to get uh, that information and how to do it in a respectful way. Um, so the dreidel game was something that he and his family taught me. Um, and then I was able to pass that on to my grade seven class. Um, but yes, I do TOC as well. And I did have a grade one class that I was covering for two weeks straight, the last two weeks leading up to break, basically. Um, or last few weeks, I should say, leading up to break. And I brought in this adorable book that I had bought for my future children. And it's basically the hungry, the very hungry caterpillar book, a spoof on that, uh, where the very hungry caterpillar introduces Hanukkah. And we also watched an episode uh, where Elmo from Sesame Street <laughs> introduces Hanukkah. And just being able to sort of decenter the assumption that Christmas is what the holiday is. And I mean, unfortunately, our calendars do work sort of around that um, assumed celebration timeline, for lack of a better way to say that. Um, so in any way that I can sort of skew the narrative or take it off of the like decenter Christmas, I try and do that. Um, and yeah, so that's that was what I did before break to try and kind of get away from the Christmas craze that I feel like a lot of other teachers just uh, kind of fall back on. Yeah, I like that. I mean, just uh, so I teach little ones too, and uh, it's it's hard explaining. When, you know, I try and explain what Christmas is really about, but I know in today's society it's all commercialism, like buy presents, give gifts, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. Um, but I try, I try and teach my young friends, you know, this is, you know, this is what we what Christmas means. And I try and introduce other holidays as well. 
um, or I even try and be uh, like neutral. I'll just say happy holidays or enjoy your winter break because not everyone does celebrate Christmas, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's cool. So you said your partner uh, introduced you to the games then? Yeah. So he has kind of, I mean, we've been together for almost well, six years now. Uh, and he has kind of brought me in and allowed me to be a part of this space, a part of his narrative and his traditions. Uh, and I've learned them uh, over the years. And I am fortunate enough to be able to have that knowledge to then bring it into the classroom. Um, but like you said, I do the same thing. I say happy holidays. And I do, do try and keep it very neutral, very sort of open, happy winter break. I hope you had a great winter break and just sort of making it seasonal. Um, rather than attaching it to a holiday. But I, again, bringing in that, bringing in Hanukkah or whatever it is, uh, we did Diwali celebrations earlier in the fall. Um, so bringing in narratives that are not maybe as centralized traditionally, um, but are central for these students. It's a part of their lives. It's a part of their traditions um, and what they're going home to do. Um, so I think it's super important to try and bring those in as often as possible and doing so in a very respectful way uh, so that it's not tokenistic. So it's, you know, not done in a cultural appropriation sort of manner because that would be obviously the worst <laughs> way to do something. Um, if you're going to do something, obviously put a lot of thought and effort into it and do it respectfully. That's cool. That's cool. I hope, uh, you know, maybe one of these days you can have your partner be a guest in your classroom. Yeah, you. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and then just even piggybacking off what you said earlier. So I think you sent out holiday cards and I think you said a happy, uh, mm-hmm. nominational holidays. Right. And then yes. I like that because you're able to tell the students, you know, celebrate whatever holiday or traditions they may be. And even, I think you talked about this, even your first grade classroom where most of your students don't celebrate Christmas yet, you know, you stepped in and <laughs> it's like a, like a hallmark, uh, you know, a classroom. There's all these Christmas decorations everywhere. And I think yeah. you took advantage of that opportunity to share just the other different narratives that there are other holidays besides Christmas. So can you tell me a little more about that thought process? Yeah. I mean, so these cards, um, first of all, I was very proud of myself because I figured out how to get a Bitmoji version of me on my computer and make these little cards. Um, and they said, happy non-denominational holidays. And it was a way that I was able to give out uh, these little cards to all my kids, put a little um, candy with them. That was part of the dreidel game. Uh, so they got a little piece of candy to go along to kind of remember what we did. Um, but then also to be able to take that home and tell their families like, Oh, look what I learned today. Um, but yeah, thought process for me in terms of, um, bringing in the idea of non-denominational holidays is just trying to make sure that the way that I teach or the way that I behave in the classroom models inclusive behavior so that I'm able to sort of demonstrate to these kids, look at how you can be welcoming and accepting of so many different um, celebrations, holidays, or lack thereof if if people don't celebrate as well. Um, And this is a way to do that while still feeling festive and excited for a break, um, even if it does revolve around one holiday more than the other Mm -hmm. or any other. Yeah, that's cool. The emoji. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> um, yeah. So I recently saw that you decorated your classroom with uh, the Among Us characters, and 
I, I'm new to this, so I recently found out about Among Us from, uh, from a previous guest, and I still have a hard time trying to keep up with, I guess, what's, you know, and I'm using quotation marks here, like air quotes, what's cool um, with all these trends, um, and it's hard for me to keep up to date, but I mean, how, how do you do it? Do you, how do you keep up with all these trends of like what's cool, what's in, I guess what's hip? I think the fact that I am a newer teacher and I'm still quite young, it helps so much more um, because older teachers are still just figuring out things that they weren't uh, necessarily a part of um, with their sort of teaching experience for the past 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, things like Zoom for them, that is a huge milestone. Whereas because I'm still young, I'm like, I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I see people's um sort of trends and what the the memes are out there and the hashtags and whatever it is. Um, as for Among Us, yes, I, I actually had a colleague create uh, these little um, Among Us characters with little hats and sort of festive um, costumes, I guess, that the, the Among Us characters are wearing. Uh, and I knew of Among Us and I knew all these kids were obsessed and especially my grade sevens and that's all that they could talk about. And so, of course, I downloaded the game and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out <laughs> what this is and see where I can put it into lessons. And um, I still don't understand the game. I'm still <laughs> trying to figure it out. Uh, definitely not my cup of tea. Um, but nevertheless, this was a way for me to connect with them uh, and be able to take something that was super trendy and be like, hey, I'm cool too. <laughs> and I think uh, I think on some level, there's an appreciation there from these kids like, hey, she's trying, even though it's probably super embarrassing for them. <laughs> she's trying. Uh, and I, I do try and kind of keep up with the trends, but it's also something that I'm inevitably a part of just because of my age. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the picture that comes in my head is uh, you playing the game, the video game Among Us, and then your partner comes in, asks what you're doing. You're like, oh, no, 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 this is for research. This, yeah. is, for, <laughs> this is for the kids. <laughs> yeah. This is um, lesson planning. Yeah. 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 This is just, yeah, this is a new way to do lesson planning. Yeah. <laughs> Scrolling through TikTok for CIs. Oh, I was doing inquiry. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, you're a big. Uh, you're a big fan of journal prompts. Um, mm -hmm. I I teach special ed now, but last year I did uh, I taught fourth grade and I incorporated a lot of writing prompts. That, like our morning morning circle did a lot of my writing prompts, and I guess that was my opportunity to be, to be the cool teacher. And I would choose yeah. what I thought was like the most up to date, like interesting prompts. Like for example. Uh, the, the Mandalorian was big or still is, but that was when the Mandalorian for Mandalorian first came out or like Apex Legends, which all I know is a video game, but I don't, if you show me the characters, I have no idea who they are, but how do you, how do you pick your topics for your journal, uh, journal rights or journal, journal responses? Um, so in a lot of my, um, history of education, both for like education program, as well as my undergraduate, um, I studied specifically indigenous histories, uh, and decolonization and specifically decolonization in education. Um, and, and I know that's a big responsibility, uh, as a guest on the land that I'm on. So I am on uh, traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam and Swasson peoples. Um, 
um, which in Canada, I mean, I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, and hours but I won't. Um, but essentially this land is stolen land. It's never been treated. Um, and it doesn't have any sort of, uh, legal bias to be, uh, on by settlers. Um, so it, that sort of frames a lot of what I do in my classroom and a lot of the work that I do on this land. So circle, as you kind of mentioned, um, is actually, uh, indigenous pedagogy basis. So circle is something that I do every morning with my grade sevens. And I would, um, try, or I, sorry, not, I would, but I do try and introduce that when I see appropriate, um, or there's time in any other class that I TOC. Um, so circle pedagogy to me is kind of where we set the stage for our journal prompts and we have really in-depth conversations. They start super low floor. Um, so basic things that just is getting to know the kids, just building community, building connection. You know, if you won the lottery, what would you buy? If you could pick a flight anywhere, where would you go? And it's at the beginning of the year, it's, you know, these very um, fun questions. And then we kind of build up and build up and we build trust and we build community through that. Um, and then halfway through the year, we kind of get more provoking, thought provoking questions, more controversial questions. Uh, and then by the end of the year, we usually have really um, in-depth, intense circles that last a lot longer than our ones in September do because we're talking about serious issues, about controversial issues. Um, and I can't mention all that and then not sort of pay comment to what happened this past week in your country, uh, in the States and everything at Capitol Hill and everything. Um, so for example, I didn't unfortunately teach the following morning, but this next week, um, when I do, uh, I will be bringing that into circle with my students, with my grade sevens, uh, and having a discussion about that in circle. Um, and then that will feed journal prompts as you kind of were asking about, um, and they'll have to do some reflection. They'll have to do some big thinking work based on what we talk about. Um, so it's almost like circle is scaffolding for these journals. Um, not to say that we always do really intense, really, um, reflective journal prompts. Sometimes they're a lot of fun. Um, but it also just gets them to think and be critical thinkers and reflective thinkers, um, about where they stand, especially at grade seven. They're just starting to kind of decide their identity and what they believe in, what they're passionate about. So at that age, it's such a crucial uh, time to introduce these ideas through journaling. Um, and when I do get them to journal as well, as you mentioned, I do try and kind of bring in things that are popular. You said the Mandalorian. Um, so I'm sure had I started uh, with this class, let's say in January rather than September, I probably would have started off with the low floor stuff being among us or, you know, whatever else is popular. But we are at a point in the year where we are talking about a little bit more serious stuff now. Um, so in my journal prompts, they're not always, I guess, the trendy things. I think I try and include that in math and other other areas. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say my journal responses so much. They stay super trendy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I think journaling is a very important space for that. And I should also mention that when I do get my kids to journal, it's not just essay style. They aren't required to just, you know, write if that doesn't work for them. So I try and create access points for all of my students where 
if writing is not something that they are uh, amazing at, that's okay. Um, they can draw, they can doodle, they can web, they can mind map, whatever is going to work for them to be able to get out their, their ideas, um, to show me what they know, how they feel. That's more important to me than the actual journaling, quote unquote. I, yeah. I like how you said, you know, start off with maybe lighter prompts and then you'll get on to more thought-provoking uh, you know, prompts. You know. um, and it's a nice smooth transition as opposed to me, you know, starting off on day one of writing prompts being like, all right, how do we end racism? Like, you know, start yeah. with something, something a little bit uh, lighthearted. And also, I guess when you do that, I guess you also can see kind of like the writing level as well. And then you said about, you know, what's also going on in the news and you know, whether it's civil unrest or social injustice or, you know, whatever, maybe, maybe the passing of an idol as well. And so bringing it up in the classroom, because sometimes, I mean, even from my particular community, um, if it doesn't get talked in the classroom, sometimes it just won't get talked around at home or Absolutely. You know, some of my students don't have... Uh, the, the home environment where they can talk about that. I mean, I have foster kids as well. And, um, so yeah, and, yeah, it's a good, cause I do believe by, you know, if you don't say anything, you don't mention it, then sometimes you do end up doing more harm because you're just mm-hmm. brushing it under the rug and you're in a way saying it's not important enough to talk. Totally. So, um, and it is a privilege also to be able to do that, to be able to be like, you know what, I'm not going to talk about it because it doesn't affect our classroom that much or whatever it is. And you as the teacher, you have the privilege or you may have, I shouldn't make a generalization. One might have the privilege to be able to do that, to be able to sweep it under the rug. And that is not the reality for a lot of our students. Um, so we need to model how to deal with that, how to have those conversations, especially when they're difficult conversations. What does that look? What does respectful listening look like? How can you talk about two very different issues, very opposing sides and still do so in a calm and respectful way? What does that look like? And these are the skills that they need to be learning in schools, because like you said, not all of them are able to get both perspectives from home or either perspective at all. Yeah, you're right. Just yeah, perspective is everything. Even when, uh, I mean, sometimes uh, some of these students' political uh, stances will get in the classroom, and I, you know, I would do my best. All right, you know, you might agree with one person, or you know, you might be on one side of the table, and they might be on the other side of the table, or even something like. You know, maybe the unfortunate passing of Kobe Bryant. So you know, most students knew who they were, who he was. And I, I tried to refrain some students saying like, all right, maybe if you didn't like him or maybe if you think another player is better than him, you know, it's mm-hmm. still a sad day that, uh, you know, he passed away. And, you know, that's, you know, we lost, you know, a, a husband and a father. Totally. So, but, yeah. And like, how do we deal with this? How do we process these feelings? It's always, you're always as a teacher, you're always doing work that might be invisible to some. And it's probably not even a, like these kids aren't even aware and they might never be aware, even as adults, like the, that the work that we are doing is building these skills to be able to process these difficult things in their life. Um, so I think we do that on a daily basis. And you're right when there's, for example, the passing of an idol, like this is something that affects them more at a younger age, but because it's, you know, an idol, they're well known, it will help them for when they are older and someone closer to them passes. 
classes because they've already sort of built up this, I don't even want to call it muscle memory, but this sort of idea and process of how to do that work in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that being said, let's, uh, let's jump into our first topic and that's sure. bridging the generation gap. And you know, for the listeners who don't know what that means. So basically uh, a simplified version of explaining this is so the generation gap is like the age gap between each generation and with each generation, they have a different outlook on opinions, beliefs, skills, attitude, and even behavior. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase like, oh, in my days, we didn't have to blah, 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 blah. And so um, here's a quick history. Uh, so you have the GI generation, which is uh, 1900 to I think 1924. And then after that is the silent generation of traditionalists, which you think is 1925 to 1945. Fast forward a bit to the baby boomers, so 1946 to 1964. Then we have the era of my parents, which is Generation X, um, or the 13ers, I think what they call them. So there's 1965 to 1979. And then we have the millennials, or Generation Y, which is from 1980 to the late 1990s. And then we fast forward to where we are today, which is... Um, the students that I'm teaching, which is the Generation Z or the iGen or the Centennials, um, basically late 1990s to the uh, 2010s. So which generation would you describe yourself as? Um, I would say, I mean, just I was born sort of on the cusp of the millennial Gen Z. Um, if we're just talking about date, uh, I was born in 1996. However, uh, I've always been sort of an old soul. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know necessarily if a generation, like I don't love generational terms as definers because I feel like they kind of offer space to make generalizations or snap assumptions about what it means to be a part of that gen generation. So I think um, there's a lot of stigma that surrounds millennials and there's a lot of stigma that surrounds Gen Z and there's a lot of stigma uh, and slang recently uh -huh. that has surrounded, you know, the boomer generation or um, I think, what did you call them? Traditionalists, perhaps? I don't know if that applies to the traditionalist or the generation X. Um, but either way, there's been a lot of sort of slang and stigma surrounding these generations. And I almost feel like it's a little more problematic than it is helpful to sort of have these divisions. Um, and they're so emphasized as, as so much of our cultural capital right now, which I find really interesting. And I don't know enough or know enough, haven't, I haven't read enough critiques to know sort of the arguments against that. But personally, I just find the, you know, the generation separator terms to be a little bit limiting, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely, like you, I guess I'm an old soul. I definitely feel I was born in the wrong era. I love the eighties and the nineties. Um, yeah. I think that's the millennials or generation Y. And so, yeah, with this reef history, so how does this tie into teaching? So in today's age, you have different types of generations working along inside each other. So you, know, you see lots of teachers, you have younger, which is teachers, which is great. Um, so that means, uh, you know, we need more open communication between the different generations of teachers and, you know, the students we're teaching are part of Gen Z and that's 19, the late nineties to the 2010s. 
Um, and so basically the people that were born in this world, you know, things that they have nowadays, they consider just the basics of the 21st century. Um, and most of the stuff is, you know, pretty new technology. Like, you know, people think like these phones, phones are really powerful now and phones act as multiple things now. They have the touchscreen and then they have, they can act as a camera, as a web browser, digital storage, notebook, transition, video calls, these phones, all these things that phones can do before. And now it just seems normal to the new generation. Um, and so it's crazy to think that even some of these phones are like not powerful enough to, to, to be a PC like on the go. Um, and I definitely see situations where maybe instead of bringing your laptop or your or a tablet, you know, I see some people bringing their, their smartphone and pretty much does whatever it is they need to do for, to be for, you know, for being productive because it's pretty much an app for everything. Um, so yeah, there's all these milestones and again, they are big milestones, but the new generation just sees it as, as a new normal, as they're only normal. And with these milestones for, are the new norm for Gen Z. There are also some negative effects um, of Gen Z that uh, they might experience. Um, what do you think are some negative effects that, about Gen Z with all this technology? Uh, I just want to start off by saying I think that happens in every generation. There's these huge leaps in technology that at least one part of that generation is going to be born into and it's going to be their assumed normal. And regardless, there's always going to be the older generation that has, and, and not everyone in the older generation, but there are going to be, be people, a part of the older generation who has issues or struggles to understand that. Um, but specific to Gen Z, the only real things that I've noticed is sort of and it's only because I'm comparing my uh, schooling experience to theirs, which I don't necessarily always recommend because we're dealing with two very different times. Uh, but the only difference that I've really seen is in writing, the actual quality of writing on paper with a pencil or pen um, and physically writing letters. Um, the printing quality has just disintegrated from when I was going to school um, and their ability to actually form a sentence without having the help of dictionaries and thesauruses on the computer. They don't want to look in the books like <laughs> I had to in school, right? Um, and not having that automatic autocorrect or spell check at their fingertips. However, with that said, yes, printing is going down. Yes, actual physical writing is getting messier and it looks and they're just not able to do it as well. They really struggle. That might just be something that eventually sort of gets phased out. And eventually the new normal might be that we don't have to rely on that. And as much as we might think that that's super important and a life skill, like, oh, you have to learn to write. You have to learn how to write well. Your writing has to be neat. Like when I went to school, you had to learn cursive writing. Yeah. Nobody has to learn that anymore. <laughs> Um, but it, it might just not be the reality for these students and the jobs that they're going to have in the future may, they may never need to use it. So to kind of force, um, what maybe we have is our set expectations in our mind of what printing or writing should look like that might not be practical to prepare them for their future. And I think we really need to challenge our assumptions and our narratives around that as well. Um, last year I was doing an inquiry, 
that. And my inquiry question originally, because I was so stubborn in this mindset. And I said, you know, how can I make my kids better at printing? How can I make their like actual letters neater? This is grade six, seven, like they should know how to write a paragraph and it should look you know, easy enough to read and it should be properly formatted and all these things. Um, and I really, as soon as we went online, because we had to go, you know, into lockdown and quarantine and whatever, and we switched to online teaching, I had to really take a step back and kind of look at my inquiry and kind of go, this is not going to work. Uh, it's not the kid's reality. It's not our reality in the world right now. There's no point in investigating this because it just does not set them up for success. And I really needed to challenge sort of what I had always assumed was really important to me. and kind of say, this is not about me. These are about the kids. What is going to help them succeed in their future? So negative effects. Yes, sure. There are some. Um, but at the same time, it just depends on how you look at it. Right. It's what is their reality? Is it negative or is it just negative in our mindset? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> like cursive. Um, yeah, you don't cursive anymore. It's, it's, it's an important skill to like, you know, sign when you sign legal documents and all of a sudden this pro- adult doesn't know how to write cursive. <laughs> but, right. But that might all be digital now yeah. and they might not ever have to really need to know that they might just need to learn a signature and that might look so different than what we kind of know it as now. Yeah, you're right. I, I guess the most recent example of people writing e-signature on like the e-pens and when you go to the grocery store and you use a credit card or debit yeah. card and I mean I, I, they never really check like oh this doesn't match your signature but yeah I guess that's the only time that uh, they really get to practice their, their signature um, yeah and so uh, some things that I've noticed and these are just generalizations this is not applied to everybody but things with Gen Z that I've noticed um, college students and even some high schoolers, they like email the professor or the teacher and basically instead of reading the syllabus, they'll just ask a question, uh, even though they could have found the answer if they took like five minutes to read whatever's on the syllabus or, uh, whatever the document the teacher had in advance. And same thing as well, uh, going back about the syllabus, uh, students will ask, do I really need to buy this book? Uh, do we really need to do this? Or they'll always tr- try and ask for like, I think the way they view it is, is a shortcut like, oh, instead of 10 pages, can we write eight pages? Or like, can we do a double space? That, you know, kind of looking for shortcuts. And even with professors or just teachers that are used to teaching with PowerPoint presentations, it's just not enough anymore. The students want more. They want different types of engagement and something that might seem like a lecture that's 10 minutes might be seen as too long now again, because you know, the digital world we're living in everything, everyone wants the information fast. So all of a sudden 10 minutes is way too long. Mm-hmm. And I know Gen Z might be described as impatient or selfish and kind of feeling that they have some sort of entitlement. And again, this is just a generalization. This is not everybody, mm-hmm. but you know, one of the biggest changes I've seen when I was in elementary school was the use of actual dictionaries and we'd be in the back of the classroom with the actual, actual dictionaries and actual thesauruses. And when we heard our like narrative writing and it came time to proofreading, one of the, you know, we had the proofreading process. So I had to go in the dictionary and find the word, make sure it's spelled right, make sure I was using the correct word as well. Or if I had words that I repeated too much, go to the thesaurus and find you know, an alternative word. 
Um, but yeah, now nowadays, last year, uh, just the past few years, but particularly last year, uh, kids have Chromebooks and these dictionaries, thesaurus, all this is, or even just if the auto check, it's all in, it's all in house in the Chromebook or whatever device they're using, and they can just simply. You know, butch will work completely if they don't know how to spell it, and then Google will come out with, "Did you mean this?" And yeah. that's, that's yeah, that's just immediately. Um, what are some challenges that you've seen? I guess from you when you were in elementary school and now. How well, you're teaching the elementary kiddos now. Yeah, I, I actually just want to, before I get to that part of the question, I actually just want to encourage you to challenge the way that you're thinking um, specifically about Gen Z and the, the word shortcut, because I think what, and this is just my opinion and you can take it as you'd like, um, but I think what Gen Z is actually getting really good at doing is making things more efficient. And that is, mm-hmm. again, like I said before, that is their reality. They are finding the most efficient way to do what is being asked. And I don't necessarily think that that's problematic. And I think that they're trying to not necessarily shortcut, but do what they're asked and have that information. Like you said, it comes to them really quickly. So why would they not expect that from their teachers and professors? Why would it benefit them to go do the longer route, you know, to read through the entire syllabus when they know that they can get an answer quicker by texting or emailing or whatever the professor or teacher getting the answer. And while, or while they're waiting for the answer, they can go do something else, whether it's wash dishes, take a shower, like whatever, right? They are able to fit more of what they need to do in a day in less time because they are making their world more efficient. So I wouldn't, I would argue that it's not necessarily shortcut. Yes, some kids definitely do this and it's maybe a little bit of laziness in there and I don't, and I don't disagree with that at all, but I think that exists for everyone and not just Jay's, um, Generation Z. Um, and I think that, you know, everyone can have lazy tendencies. Um, but yeah, I think they're just really making efficient their world. Um, but specific to the biggest changes, um, that last part of the question. So the biggest changes that I've seen since elementary school, like I said, I mean, we don't use cursive anymore. Like you said, we don't use dictionaries and thesauruses and actual books where you're having to look through all these pages to find this one word, to find words that go off of it or a definition or whatever. Um, and I feel like that's okay. This is, like I said, it's the reality. It's their life. They found, or we have all found a better way to do this, a quicker way to do this that frees up more time to do so many other things in the world. Um, and we're progressing faster and faster because we are able to really sort of scale down the time it takes us to do certain tasks, which is really intriguing to me as an educator. And I'm sure many educators would uh, concur. Uh, but yeah, I mean, biggest changes, the efficiency is a huge one. Uh, how kids play, I'm going to say it's definitely changed, um, simply because play now is more device oriented, uh, than it is creative with nature. Uh, that is something I would like to see a little bit more balance in. I'd love to see kids 
maybe using the tech that they are so well-versed in to be able to find out things about their natural world uh, and go and experience it in new and different ways. And I'm sure there's many apps out there uh, that exist. I have yet to find really good ones and really good resources to introduce them. Uh, but there, I mean, I'm for any app developers out there, if there's any way to make it really addicting for kids, like Pokemon Go a few years ago, yeah. that was the most brilliant thing ever. It got people out of the house in fresh air, going to different parks that maybe they had never been before and really taking advantage of the nature and the world that was around them. And people were contacting each other. You know, people were talking, getting excited together about the same thing. So that was just sort of this disruption in this narrative of, of sort of device centered play. And that was amazing to see, but obviously COVID has almost reversed that or everyone's now scared to go out and, um, there's more people staying in and trying to, you know, connection has been really lost over the past year. So again, these are things that are just yearly changes, very different from when I went to school for sure. Um, but I think any and every generation can say that they've learned different. And I think every year something changes. So someone who's in grade seven right now, will say that the grade sixes are learning differently. Um, so I think it can be applied to sort of every age. Yeah. I do like the fact that, um, you know, how you said, even I do this, just finding the most effective way. If I don't have to do this, like what's a quicker, uh, quicker way of achieving whatever the task is being asked, you know, just work smarter, not harder. Um, and then (laughs) that's what you said about Pokemon go. Yeah. I like that. That was a, it was a big, uh, it was a big thing when it first came out, <laughs> just a, a bit off topic when Pokemon came, go came out and I told my, I told my neighbor, oh, I have a dog. I said, Oh, come on, come walk the dog with me. Let's go around the block. And he rejected me. And then while I was out walking my dog, I see him walking alongside with me and he's doing the Pokemon go. And so I guess he turned me down getting fresh air, walking with my dog. But instead he wanted to do the Pokemon go. Um, but that's, uh, but you know what? He was outside. And if, yeah. if that's like all he can do in that mind space, then that's better than nothing. Right. We yeah. have to like take it for what it is. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't take it personally, but I was like, all right, no, you yeah. won't go out for, I guess just, he didn't view it as exercise. He just viewed it as playing, you know, just getting, playing with Perfect. his friends and connecting. Perfect. So. Then. What, however we can trick <laughs> our minds into thinking that we um, are, you know, doing something fun, but also doing something really important for our soul and our mental health. Yeah. For for me, the, the biggest difference from when I was in elementary school to now me teaching elementary students is uh, the differences in language use and uses and access to technology and even just the attitude towards life. So uh, things never change. So we have like, you know, a hierarchy of needs. Um, you know, basic needs are still the same. My you know, students still need food, water, love, you know, all that. Um, but students still want to feel connected and engage with community, but just looks a lot different now. Um, most of it's digital, the digital world. And so the big challenge that I see is that current schools and even the curriculum, the teaching uh, methodologies, they serve the needs of the previous generation and not the present or even just the future generation, you know, trying to plan ahead. 
And it's not really certain. It's not my fault. It's not, you know, the educator's fault. It's not the principal's fault. It's certain things take a, l- a lot longer to change. Obviously textbooks um, take a lot longer to change. You know, I do see the argument that maybe eBooks or e-textbooks can be changed on much quicker um, or immediately. Um, and even standards, standards do take a long time to change as well. And so many students will feel bored in traditional classrooms because they don't maybe identify with the content or even the teachers are frustrated because they're trying to keep their student engaged with the content or with their, the learning or teaching style that they know, but it just, it doesn't connect. It's, it's, it's the generation gap right there. Have you ever taught a lesson or maybe content that you taught that you felt was outdated and you saw the students were uninterested and like, Oh yeah, this is not working. This is, this is not, uh, this is not for them. (laughs) I wouldn't say outdated, but I mean, I've definitely taught lessons where, you know, it's Friday afternoon and the kids are just not in it and fair enough. And you kind of have to do that self-assessment in the moment and kind of step back and be like, okay, they're really checked out. This is not going to happen today. (laughs) We need to try it again next week or try it in a different way to kind of engage them in a different way. Um, and it's just sort of that immediate sort of metacognitive reflective thinking like, okay, what am I doing? Is is this working? Is this working? Is everybody getting it? Is this kid who has important needs? Is that kid who has these different needs? Are they on board? Are they engaged? Um, and you have to constantly be going through that sort of script in your mind to make sure, and it's a lot of energy and it's a lot of work, but it's something that we do. and, And as teachers, we need to do it to make sure that the lessons don't get outdated or boring for the kids and they can stay engaged and stay, you know, in love with learning. Um, I was going to say something else. What I was going to say. Hold on. Just looking over the question. Oh, yes. So also for textbooks, I mean, I don't know what it's like uh, in every state or every province here in Canada, but specifically uh, in my teacher education program, textbooks were kind of seen as something like be careful if you decide to use them Uh, and they're kind of being not necessarily frowned upon, but they're not really used anymore or, or suggested to use in the classroom. We have, we were taught to kind of focus more on getting kids to do most of their critical thinking and their own research and their own inquiry online. Because again, that's the reality. That's what they're using every single day. It's like, okay, how do we do that? Well, how do we make sure they're being critical of the information that they're seeing, checking their sources um, and finding out different perspectives and different truths um, of whatever it is. And textbooks are really not used anymore. However, when an older teacher um, has been teaching with a textbook for so many years, it is very, very easy. And I can see this. I mean, it would just be so easy to be like, I know I'm doing page 26 today. I know I'm showing up and this is what I'm going to say. And I don't even have to think about my job anymore. This is amazing. And I'm sure that's the mindset and, and the ease when you've got so much else going on in your life, of course, that's efficiency in its own sort of sense. Um, however, textbooks, like you said, they don't change fast enough. And then often textbooks are, um, like education in general, but a little bit more so are sort of produced to to convey a specific message to kind of, uh, show 
one perspective more than the other. I've seldom seen a textbook that offers many different perspectives about the same issue or different uh, tellings of the same histories. I haven't really seen that. Um, it might exist out there, but I feel like digital resources are replacing textbooks, at least in my experience. And I don't know if it's like that in the States. Um, but yeah, I just don't see textbooks as something that are going to exist for very long. A, they're terrible for the, pla- <laughs> the planet because uh, you're cutting down trees and then they maybe last six years and then older teachers use them for 20 when they really shouldn't be. Uh, and yeah, I just, I see everything shifting online. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, outdated. If teachers still teach with textbooks, kids don't necessarily know any different if that's what your teacher does. Um, but they might be like a little confused. I don't know. <laughs> that's how I sort of see it. I see things going more digital. Yeah. And even, um, so I'm, I'm in the master's program right now, and then you know we have the option either choosing you know, the digital textbook or hard copy. For a while, I've always liked the hard copy, but now I've transitioned more to digital. <laughs> and when it comes for me teaching, so as a student, I like the digital. As a teacher, I do like the hard copy, and I mean, all my textbooks are kind of a mess because there's. I guess I'm calling out the, the publishers, but there's a lot of errors in my textbooks, lots yeah. and lots of errors and there's sticky notes and like crossings off. And like, for example, like for math, um, it's no longer, we no longer call it improper fractions, but it's called fractions greater than one. So I put a sticky note to make sure I say that because it's, it's an old textbook. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, yeah, I like how you said like the textbooks, they, yeah, they might become outdated because they are kind of a, I had, on paper, yeah. I had no idea they were called, wait, did you say fractions more than one? Is that the yeah, new so name? Yeah, so no longer improper fractions, fractions greater than one, yeah. That is not something I've heard yet, but I'm going to have to make note of that. That's very interesting. Yeah. The reason I guess they no longer call it improper fractions is because, so what's, what's improper about this fraction? Right. right. So no, it's, it's, it's that, so. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Um, so even in the workforce, uh, we have several generations of teachers, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. So we have those who are experienced and they have all this professional knowledge they accumulated over the years and really mastered you know, from years of experience. And then you have the younger, younger generation. I uh, would describe them having these new teachers, you know, those eager to teach, has new ideas, have all this new energy. Uh, and, you know, as a principal, you want the best of both worlds. You really want to use the strengths from the, you know, the, from two different generations, from the experience and the newer teacher. And it can, you know, there can sometimes be a clash. And I know during this pandemic, all of a sudden the experienced teachers felt like new teachers because they, they might've felt like they had to start from scratch. Um, they might have not have been so tech savvy. And there's the idea that one generation teacher might be independent sometimes, uh, you know, like, like veterans, like they, they don't, uh, they want to do things their own way because they've been doing it for the longest time. <laughs> And then on the other side, you have, you know, the, you describe maybe as unexper- inexperienced teachers, um, you know, and they're often distressed because, you know, they're trying to figure out everything as they go. And so I, I see how it can clash, but you know, I'm really grateful that my district and I guess just even the community 
it's you know not only diverse and as far as uh, ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation and all that but we're also diverse in the different generations that we have and it really gives me a chance to learn from the best and you know because i i do pick the, the brains of the older teachers and because they have some great ideas would you consider your school diverse and as far as like the different generations Specific to the school I'm in currently, I am one of the only new teachers uh, and that has been a little bit problematic also because I'm super passionate and I can't shut up even if people try to, to do so. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely more of an older crowd. However, uh, my partner and I are moving, uh, which means I'm moving into a new district and a new school very soon. Uh, just about over a month. Um, so I have no idea what to expect there, but I know a lot of younger teachers who are teaching in that district and I'm looking forward to having more sort of support around my age, more mentorship uh, and hoping that there is some more young teachers. Um, And like you said, I do enjoy working with older teachers as an old soul. I've always connected with people older than me. And I think there are some amazing master teachers out there who can be so, 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 so important for us new teachers and um, such a virtue and such an important resource for us to access. And they've, you know, if you have a problem, they've probably been through it. I can almost guarantee you they've dealt with everything. And there are those amazing master teachers who you can just ask uh, and they're there to support you with almost any problem with maybe like we talked about the exception of certain tech (laughs) aspects. Um, But then again, there are sort of those teachers who've been around for a long time. And like you said, just like to stick in their ways and not really do that continual learning and relearning and unlearning that you need to do as a teacher in order to stay relevant and politically correct, quite frankly, um, with your students in order to teach them effectively. You really need to be open, even when you've been teaching for 25, 30 years and you're close to retirement. And I can understand sort of that um, apathy. And I don't want to say apathy because I don't want to be rude. But at the same time, that sort of idea of like, you know what, I've been doing this long enough. I know what I'm doing. I'm good at what I'm doing um, and not making that space to do the really difficult work of unlearning and bringing in new ideas. Um, and I, it's frustrating because the teachers who kind of do that get really stuck and they don't have to, or they don't make the opportunity to see the wonderful things that can come up out of these young, new, fresh ideas that are maybe a little bit too eager. But if we put them with their tried and true experience, we can create magic. And I think it becomes a little problematic when older teachers just sort of shut the door and don't make space for that. So I know you only asked me (laughs) if my school is diverse, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's uh, like that. Um, So I guess he's another quick history lesson. So mm-hmm. there uh, fun fact about the distribution about like the teaching force. So this data from over the past 35 years. So the last like great period of teaching uh, hiring occurred in like late 1960s and early 1970s in which more than half of the, well, this is in the U S or more than mm-hmm. half the U S teaching force were relatively new teachers. So that means uh, 10 or 10 years or less of experience. And then fast forward 15 years later in like 1980, 86, this group of new teachers um, was still 
um, representing the, the majority of all the teachers. So these new teachers became the veteran teachers and they still accounted for the majority. So roughly 45%. And there's still few uh, teachers being hired or few new teachers being hired. And then we fast forward to 2001 where again, the same cohort of teachers, they're reaching towards that age of that time where it's time to retire. And thus this led to the beginning of a new era where new teachers were coming in and going to get hired. And now this new cohort of teachers has become the largest segment of the teaching force. So like, you know, what does this mean? So basically, I mean, as far as here, um, there still isn't a lot of hiring of new teachers. And in a previous episode, I talked about how there's teacher shortages, um, particularly in certain subject areas like special ed um, or math or science or even bilingual. And again, so yes, teachers are staying in the workforce even longer and there's, you know, they're retiring at a much later age. And so if I talk recently about just even my, my teacher preparation program or my credential program, there was a good mix of older and younger adults. Uh, I had uh, teacher candidates or that were, that came in from another profession or, you know, they, one of them was you know, in the military and came to do this. And so, you know, several of them were over the, the 30 uh, year age of range, hmm. 30 years old. Um, but yeah, this, it was nice seeing fresh faces really young, like 22, 21 year olds. And then it was a nice seeing like the, the older, older teachers. So when you did your, I guess your credential program, your teacher preparation program, was there a mix of, I guess the new and old? <laughs> Uh, yes, but I think less. So what, what percentage would you say yours was like? Uh, so well, I think there was 18 in my credential program and one, two, I think two were, um, 30 plus and then like four were 27 plus and everything. I think everyone else was like in their early twenties. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I would, um, we had a lot of young, uh, students in mind. We had a group of 36. We were the middle school cohort, the self-regulated learning cohort. Um, we had some older adults, um, some sort of late twenties, early thirties, um, and a lot of, uh, you know, freshly undergrad grads. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it was a really good mix. We had this amazing group and I'm really sad that we didn't, um, get to sort of experience the whole year together because of COVID um, and the way that we were supposed to, but uh, it was, it was quite the ride. It's a, for me anyway, it was an 11 month condensed program. So you're doing sort of what would be a four year degree um, program in the same amount of credits condensed into uh, 11 months. And it was super expedited and we were all on this sort of roller coaster ride together and it really brought us close and it was, it was just wild. Um, but I think having that mix of, you know, older, more, I almost want to say in this scenario, more calm uh, adults was very helpful in balancing uh, us youngins who were kind of freaking out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that sounds like a good mix. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, my program is nice because either you can be an undergraduate or you can be you know, a postgraduate. So, Okay. It was very competitive and I like how diverse uh, it was. So, 
Yes. So you're, you, you didn't have to do then a, like a four year or whatever undergraduate first, you could go into this program as your sort of year one fresh out of high school kind of thing. So the way it happened, yeah. So you could be an undergraduate and then you still do all your undergraduate work and then you just continue into your teaching preparation program. And the nice part is you're still labeled an undergraduate. And so for those who got financial aid, like obviously if you, when you go to school and you come as a graduate student, it's more expensive as opposed to staying as an undergraduate student. So there was that benefit for those who did continue staying as an undergraduate, just transitioning right. to this program. Uh, financial aid wasn't affected because, you know, on paper, you're still an undergraduate student. So okay. that's, that's what I did. And, um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was, uh, yeah. it was hard. It was, so I did a dual credential program. So I did two credentials at the same time. So what would be done in four years got done, got done in two years and it was, uh, a grueling two years. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> and then, um, the, the big question that I often hear from my teacher friends is, from their students is that like the, the middle and high school students, they're, they're always asking the older teachers is, you know, why, why have you taught for so long? You know, why didn't you ever do something when you're going to retire? Why didn't you want to be your principal? And you know, the previous generation of teachers, they just really wanted to focus on their career and just basically being a better teacher in the classroom. And so most of them never really sought the administration route and moving up, uh, in, you know, up in the ranks, I guess. And so, then you have the newer generation of teachers. And I think kind of like how you said, just looking for the most effective way and quickly trying to move up. Like, how can I quickly get from here to here to here? My, my bachelor's, my master's and a doctor's, or how can you be a principal or maybe a professor trying to do this the quickest way possible? And, you know, I know part of this has to do with teacher shortages and like there's competitiveness, um, especially with the cost of living being expensive in, in certain states. And you want to move up. They want the higher position, that, that higher paying job for that security. And there are fast tracks options as well, where a teacher candidate doesn't have to go maybe the traditional route. And there's even like these emergency credentials or these alternative pathways, um, kind of like what I said. So my program was done in two years instead of four years. Um, I, I, I did it because, um, yeah, it was great to when you know at job security I have two credentials I also did it because for me I felt like I had the best of both worlds I could you know if I had taught in gen ed I can know how to integrate sped students and if I taught sped I can you know really teach and push them for the integration in the gen ed classroom that was my reason for doing that but uh, yeah, not only did I save money as well but uh, <laughs> and that competitive edge no doubt yeah um at your university, I mean, is there a lot of different, like, or when you did your credential program, was there a lot of different pathways to get your credential and, uh, to, to, I guess, different ways to be the, the teacher? So I actually, had, so I did an undergraduate degree at one university, and then I had sort of three different universities that were close enough to where I was living um, to be able to choose which one I wanted to do for my teacher education program. And, um, I was fortunate enough that I really could get into all of them, which was amazing. And it was the choice was really up to me. 
So the one that I ended up doing uh, was at the University of British Columbia, which is in Vancouver, the city that I'm now living in. Uh, and it was the 11 months, super expedited, super condensed program. Uh, and I did it for the same reasons that you did to just sort of make it as efficient as possible. It was, yes, it was a grueling year, just as yours, your two years were, um, and to save the money of the longer you're in school, the longer you're paying for living and not bringing in money. Right. And, uh, and for that competitive edge, like you said, to be able to get into the job market faster. Um, however, in retrospect, the other two programs at the other two universities were 16 months long so still fairly condensed but just a little bit longer um, and in retrospect financially maybe it wouldn't have been the best decision but for mental health and just the opportunities that I think I could have gotten if I had been in one of the longer programs that would have been better um, but as for career paths in the one that I was in at the University of British Columbia or UBC uh it was kind of the one that I got into was kind of only post-degree programs. You had to have some sort of undergraduate degree first in order to go into it or uh, an ample amount of experience that was related to education in some way that, and that went through a long process um, in terms of um, acceptance and, and all the boards and whatever it had to go through uh, for those applying with just experience. Uh, they had to write essays. They had to kind of prove all their qualifications in different ways where it was really easy if you had an undergraduate degree with teachable subjects. Um, it was kind of a no, like you got in no problem. Uh, and they make it sound super competitive and whatever. But as you mentioned, there's teacher shortage and people are, you know, districts are desperate. So of course you're going to get into the program. And when you get into the program, everyone freaks out and they're like, Oh, am I going to pass? Like, I, I don't want to, you know, get to the end and then not graduate and have to do it again or whatever. Everybody passes pretty much with the exception of maybe a handful. And then that's just because of a real concern, you know? Um, but for the most part, everyone passes and it's really not as competitive as they make it out to be just because we're so desperate for teachers, which is disappointing because really it'd be great if the market was competitive because then you'd have to be the best at your job and there'd be the incentive to work harder and to be better and to know more, you know, to be the best at whatever it was that you were teaching. Um, and that would be ideal, but um, no, for career path wise, it was kind of just either undergraduate, with teachable subjects or um, a lot of experience that had to be proved and, and sort of uh, showcased to the accepting board. <laughs> knowing what you did, uh, knowing how you know it all came out and the program you did, like would you do it all over again or you change it? Uh, I, again, I would probably want to try the 16 month, a longer <laughs> one just for peace of mind, but I shouldn't say I'm very grateful to have the opportunities that I did and to meet the amazing people that I did and, and my fellow colleagues who I now know, I, I love them and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't probably obviously retrospect is 2020, but, uh, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. I was very grateful and I made a lot of important, um, networking connections as well. Uh, so that was fantastic and I'm, I'm very lucky in that sense as well was it was, was it a cohort style were you the same people for like yeah. i don't know long months yeah okay for okay. all 11 months we were the same uh, core and we just went through that ride together uh, I, I do really like the cohort style that's that's what uh, i did yeah. it's nice um 
there are extreme cases where you might not like a, might not like a person and you're stuck with them for uh, you know, yep. for a long time. But uh, yeah, most of the time, it's well. Like you're you know, you're all going through the same stress and the same totally. problems and struggles. And so those it's nice that. Yeah, and those that you don't get along with or that really challenge you to have a lot of patience some days, um, especially when you've, you know, been in class together for eight hours on end and it's that last class and they're just really pinching your nerve and just getting on your uh, sort of last straw. It's, it's what we can learn from those opportunities about ourselves as human beings, but especially about how it's going to be. It's sort of like a a window to the future as a teacher. It's kind of like, okay, this, imagine this person who you really don't get along with, who's really ticking you off. That one day is going to be you in a classroom with some kid who's just on your last nerve. How are you going to react? How are you going to handle it? And even though it's a, it's a fellow adult in this scenario, um, who is doing the exact same program as you, you know, it's supposed to have the same sort of maturity level as you, um, and not a kid. Evidently, this will be a situation that you, you know, have to cross in the future. It's how are you going to handle it? So, yes, there are people that you are not going to get along with, but it's how you handle it. And I'm sure you had I'm sure you had people like that, too, uh, in your cohort that were like, oh, maybe not my favorite person. <laughs> yeah, even even go back to my cohort uh, and the way it went, um, I did like that there was different generations of candidates there. And I know Gen Z is about, we live in a very fast life. And so there's constant changes. And I know when I first attended college, our counselor would say like, oh, it's okay if you don't know what your major is going to be, you're going to change it. Like average student changes it two to three times. Um, wow. And so uh, it's kind of the same thing now with uh, with teachers. You know, it turns out like 34% of K-12 teachers uh, uh, have career changes. So they come in into the field of education education from a previous uh, field and or different background and so can you take a guess uh what a majority of these uh career changes where these teachers are coming from i actually don't know but i'm i'm just trying to think of the careers uh of the older of the people who are in my cohort who are older where they came from and i want to say I don't know. I don't know what you'd call it necessarily, but just like desk jobs where you're in your cubicle. We had a lot of people who were just doing like sort of human resource type work. And I think their intention was that they were supposed to be working with people and ended up in these dark little cubicles and they just really felt unfulfilled. So then they had choice to move to education and be working with people every single day. It was probably the most natural, but I, again, I don't know. That was only specific to my cohort. So enlighten me. What, what was it? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're pretty much on the right track basically business so most of these uh, people are teachers saying that they're just looking for a change of pace a change of environment and so just uh, in teaching in this tenure usually when it's time for the new school year um, basically what happens is, uh, the teachers have been there the longest Uh, they have the tenure so they get to pick which grade they want to be in um, unfortunately, sometimes this leaves, uh, the new hires or the new teachers coming in often getting bunched together because the, the teachers that have been there the longest, they have first pick and they usually, uh, 
they stay together within their same grade. And so, for example, when I first got hired, it was all the lower grades that there were the open spots that are open, the vacancies. And so it was the same grade levels that needed to be hired. And as a principal, I really think that they should try and mix the teachers with the, the newer teachers with the veterans. And I know I mentioned that before, again, trying yeah. to get the best of both worlds. Uh, and so I think a really you know good way to do this is having teachers observe each other and mm -hmm. having that planning time. I know teachers, we have a lot on our plate. And so there's that, Oh, I don't have time. I have to do this. I have to do that. And then you know, I have my life outside of school. I have to go pick up my children. I have all these other mm -hmm. obligations as well. But my, at the, at the previous school I was at, I really did like that the principal offered having the teachers have a day off a paid day off to go observe another teacher. And that was, I really liked that idea because, um, um, you, know, you can really learn from other teachers instead yeah. of carving time out of your already busy schedule to collaborate with other teachers. Um, maybe your non-contract hours or you're not getting paid to do it. But in this case scenario, the principal said, no, why don't you take the day off and go, go observe another teacher. She would encourage it to observe another teacher at a different school site in the district. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something that I really enjoyed because mm -hmm. there was no pressure to like, you have to do this, you have to do this. Right. Um, all within, I guess, you know, contract hours. And so yeah. the whole collaboration, do, do you collaborate a lot with your teachers? I not in the position that I'm currently in, unfortunately, I'd love it to be more. Um, but last year I'm working in an elementary school this year. So it's K to seven, um, in this district, but in the district, I was in a different district last year and we actually had a middle school model. So six, seven, eight, uh, and in that six, seven, eight school, we had a designated time that the principal did put in. And I might've even gone beyond was might've been even gone beyond the principal and might've been a district thing. Um, where the time was actually scheduled into your timetable is part of your prep time. And we had a prep block every single day where we would sit down with the teachers in our, what was called a pod. So for us, it was about six classrooms and all the teachers sat down together and were like, Hey, what are you doing this week? What do you want me to do here? What can I do to help here? Let's plan this. Let's do this all together on Friday or whatever it was. Uh, and it was so magical. It was the best experience ever. And I would highly recommend if there are any principals looking to make their school a little bit more cohesive, have a little bit better uh, community. That is something so important and integral and not having to do that. Like you said, outside of contract hours, um, is, is just so important and it makes the school and the education quality go beyond because there's always going to be a teacher who really specializes in something. And if they have a gift that they can share with the other classes, with other teachers and those other teachers are able to take that on, we are going to have the best education because you're getting expertise from all of these amazing, um, you know, funds of knowledge, which would be incredible. Um, yeah. So, I mean, collaboration is probably the most valuable tool that can be uh, instilled in, in the timetable. And I totally agree with you. Um, that I think it's super, super important. Um, that's unfortunate though, that you said um, kind of all the younger levels were empty and, and vacant for the new teachers. Yeah. You, why, why do you think that is? Just uh, less desirable. Okay, so to, to generalize, uh, this is again, this is not for all teachers. You know, obviously, as we get older, maybe our patient runs thin, and so mm -hmm. the younger grades you do require more patience. And so the veteran teachers did like 
the upgrades. And so right. that left and led the, yeah, the kindergarten, the TK, the first grade would be maybe for the, for the newer teachers. Cause I guess the newer teachers have, I guess they have, they have that energy to deal with it. <laughs> Fair enough. So. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and I just wanted to also respond to the business that, that teachers who were going through career changes were coming from business. I find that really intriguing. And I wonder, um, maybe after the podcast, you can email me the source or the study or wherever that came from, because I'd really like to read it because business to me, I feel like it's such an independent, um, career type. Not that you don't rely on networking and other people, but you're really able in business to just take initiative and be the best of the best. If that is what you are striving for. Whereas in education, at least in public school, you are limited by so many different, um, other bodies and certain grievances and, and aspects of, um, just essentially the union or, or the setup itself. And I'm surprised that people who are in business and able to sort of decide what their own success was, decide what their own schedule would look like, like, in teaching, you don't have that freedom. You don't have that choice. So I'd be really curious to know the why behind that. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know, maybe that's something I can research more after, but yeah, I've, I found that really intriguing. So yeah, the, the why is, um, usually yeah, in business, it's you know, independent, uh, like you said, but, uh, usually in one area or, if, you know, in a desk or in a, cubicle in our conference room and yeah you do travel back and forth maybe a little bit from one area to another or one side of the office or another but as far as the they said they were looking for a change of pace um because teachers <laughs> they're always on the feet yeah. <laughs> no matter what age group you're with you know with the little ones or with the younger ones or the younger ones or even the older ones um even the older ones they keep you on your feet mentally <laughs> so, right so uh, I, i'm gonna assume that we're yeah. not talking about like business in terms of entrepreneurship because in that sense you would be on your feet all the time so yeah. yeah it's probably more the you know desk job business type thing okay that makes sense yeah um and then i know earlier i was talking about the the differences from when i was teaching when i was in elementary and now me teaching in elementary the the, the source and the dictionary mm -hmm. and you know having like even chromebooks i <laughs> yeah, we didn't have these portable Chromebooks. We had the, the, the clunky, clunky, I think they were MacBooks or I think that's what they're called. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, or we had a designated area. We had to go to the, the computer, computer lab. Room. Or the, yeah. The, yeah. Computer room. Yeah. Yes. We had to walk across campus, you know, stay on the dotted and stay on the lines and be quiet in the hallways. Um, but now it's just uh, in a cart in the back of the room. But the the thing is, you know, the, the new generation have access to information all the time. It's and, and it's immediate. Um, but with that, I always try and emphasize that the number one search at the top of the Google might not be the most accurate um, or the most reliable. It's just yeah. it's an algorithm, basically. It's, you know, what's the most relevant or what's the most clicked? Uh, and so I really try and drive that home, especially when, back when I was with Gen Ed. So research projects, our group projects, like, all right, just make sure you're aware of where the information is coming from, make sure it's reliable. Um, and so that was one of the main things I wanted to teach. And for, I guess, even your kiddos, do you tell them to be careful, like the information they receive or like whether it's even TV or online or internet or wherever it may be that, you know, be aware that. Uh, it might not be true and just be careful mm -hmm. where it's coming from. 
it's really easy to just tell them that, but what we really need to do is to show them how to figure that out from this for themselves, you know, build those skills in their mind and those processes to be able to critically think for themselves and be able to kind of look at a thing and go, okay, is this real? How do I know who published it? You know, who's writing it? Why is it being published? Where is it being published? And all these sort of different criteria that one can look through to determine maybe not just the validity of something, but also one's own opinion about it. You know, do I do, do I agree with this person? Do I have other thoughts or am I just reading the rhetoric and assuming that it's correct? So as much as I don't tell them, I really try and work it um, into my lessons for them and have sort of criteria like, did you check your sources? Prove to me uh, that you know why this article or this source is here. Who is publishing it? Why are they publishing? Like, what are they benefiting, right? Our media and what uh, information we get on Google. Yes, it's an algorithm, but it's also a business because you are able to pay for that top spot on Google. Um, so, I mean, everything in the world, this one, my partner always says it's very much his catchphrase. It's everything in the world is a business. Everything has to do yeah. with money. And that unfortunately is just sort of the repercussion of existing in a capitalist society. Um, and that's just where we are in the global North and, and what we exist in. Not to say that we can't challenge it from inside, but anyway, that's a whole different topic. Um, but yeah, we're able to pay uh, for those, that top spot on Google. And, and I want my kids to know that. So we do a lot of work to have them understand like, okay, just because it's here and accessible to me does not mean it's correct. Somebody's trying to sell me that information. Who is it and why? Like, what is the motive behind it? So there is this website and I, I'm going to have to bring it up. Otherwise, I'm not going to get it correct. But it's the something with a tree octopus. Let me just quickly uh, bring up my online education. <laughs> it is... Where is it here? Mm, sorry. Ah, it is Save the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. And it's this website. And I did it with my grade sevens this year. And they were too quick. They were too good already. And I probably did it later in the year than I should have. I think grade five might be ideal for this. Um, and it's this website that's put out to look really real, to look like the, you know, these scientists put out uh, this um, this information all about this creature that doesn't really exist. And it's called this Pacific Northwest tree octopus. And you know, it has a really well edited photo of an octopus in a tree. And it gives all this like scientific quote unquote information. It looks super smart. And so kids can get tricked really easily if they don't have those skills um, to critically think. However, within a minute of assigning it and, you know, I gave out a graphic organizer. I was like, tell me all about the tree octopus. This is so important. We're going to save it from extinction. Uh, and you know, you do this whole ruse and this whole setup. Uh, and then the kids in my grade seven class got it within one minute. And I was like, okay, well, how did you know that, that this source wasn't legitimate? How did you figure that out? Uh, and they're like, well, we Googled it and we went onto Wikipedia and we went on to here 
And it wasn't just that they just Googled it. They searched within Google, which I was so proud of. I was like, yes, you went beyond Google. You just, you know, you looked at different sources. You looked at images, you watched videos, you listened uh, to voice recordings. You know, you didn't just read the first thing. I mean, you did read it, but that wasn't the only thing that you read uh, the first time on Google. So that was amazing. And I do encourage, you know, um, maybe upper intermediate grade four or five, maybe even grade six teachers to check that one out because it is hilarious to see kids <laughs> because you'll have a few kids who will try and at least at that grade, grade level, they're kind of figuring it out and they're like, I don't really know if I believe this, like, or they figure it out and they're just looking at you like, what are you talking about, Miss Cullen or whatever? Uh, and then some kids just do the whole assignment and they don't even, you know, think to fact check or think to uh, do more research. And it's, and it's a really valuable opportunity to kind of teach them like, okay, this isn't real. And this is why we do research. So <laughs> highly recommend that one. Um, but yeah, we just kind of built it into everything we do. Oh, I like that. I like that. I, I kind of did something similar where I kind of provided, oh, I did it from scratch, I think. Um, Good for you. <laughs> and, and so I made a quick, like a fake website and a quick study. And I, I, I think it was all along the lines of like, oh, you know, these shoes will save the world. And like, you should really right. try these shoes and yeah. I guess like the zero emission, blah, 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 all the recycled <laughs> materials. Right. And the kids are like, wow, that's awesome. This is great. You know, we should really be buying these shoes. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, like, all right, look at the research. Who, who funded this research? And it's, it's the, it's the shoe company. Obviously they're going to push their own of agenda. Course. Like you should, you should buy these shoes. You'll save the world. By the way, we made it. So it's a, I, you know, I told them like, you should really look, yeah, it may sound yeah. great, but who's behind it? Like, what yeah. is their agenda? Like you said, and what is the main idea? Yeah. And then I said, you know, this is, it might seem like a great study, but in reality, this is just another advertisement for them to totally. buy more shoes. So, yeah. And again, like everything is a business. This is an opportunity to teach them like, everything has money attached to it and everything has a purpose. It's not just out there to help you. Chances are it's not right. So that's a great, and that's very impressive that you did it from scratch. I certainly did not, but kudos to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I I think I mentioned this earlier. So how not only do we have access to information like much quicker, even at our fingertips on our phone. Um, but I know it's supposed to make us more efficient at working. So, you know, I can find the answer much quicker than I could before. And because of this, because we're exposed to information much you know, quicker and more frequently, uh, students are, you know, are getting exposed to information at a much earlier age. And basically I, I've noticed that adolescence starts earlier and it lasts longer um, just because they've been exposed to it at a much earlier age. And, you know, maybe violence or, or sex. Mm-hmm or, you know, swear words. They're exposed to it at a much earlier age. Have you noticed this as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they have access to everything. And on TikTok and all these apps that they use, it is there for them. And I don't necessarily think it is. And again, this is just my opinion. I don't think it is beneficial to try and prevent kids from seeing that because they are going to see it regardless. The parents who, you know, take away or don't give their kid a phone until later, they are actually, in my opinion, what I've witnessed, they are actually generationally and like developmentally behind their peers and they're often left behind and often bullied because they're missing out on that content. And it's not that that content is good to see at that age by any means, but 
again, it is their reality. And I know I've said that so many times, um, but it's so important that they are a part of that narrative because then we as teachers know that they're all on the same page. And then we get to teach them and show them, okay, this is how we, this is what this is. And this is how we respond to it safely and create safe, safe spaces and safe practices, especially with the more um, taboo topics as well, because it is out there. And I would rather kids have it all in front of them and be prepared and know what they are seeing and be able to kind of um, look at it again with a critical lens even at a younger age than we ever would have seen it as uh, seen it at. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important that, that we just give them the tools to know because they are going to see it no matter what. Um, ad- adolescence definitely starts younger and younger. And, and I think it will continue to, and that's okay because the definition for adolescence will just change just like everything else. The idea of what it is or that, that term will just evolve and it'll change. And I wonder, and I don't know enough about this and maybe psychologists can weigh in or whatever, uh, or whoever I should say, uh, but I don't know how developmentally in the actual brain, how this is changing with this information. Is their brain developing in a different way to be able to cope or, um, see this information at a younger age or is their development sort of behind and they are you know receiving this information and their brain isn't quite at the you know place where they're able to receive it I don't know um I have yet to do more research on that as well I imagine that's part of it um but nevertheless that information in the media is out there and we need to as teachers just at least prepare them so that's what I would say (laughs) I don't I know how you feel. The, yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely see the pros and cons of getting, you know, adolescents, sorry, at a much earlier age. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I know I'm saying this again and again, that, that Gen Z, they're, they're obsessed with the digital world or just, I guess, even the virtual world. Like, I, I mean, I'm still fascinated that we have like, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality. I'm still very fascinated by that. And I, I know they have a strong connection to social media and to some, again, this is generalization, not everyone, but the, their connection to social media is everything. And we have these smartphones that connect us to everything that we may need, whether it's, again, our smartphones can have our email, text, phone call, games, social media, like there's an app for everything. And we have multiple channels to communicate with each other. Again, like with email, text, phone call, and again, all the, all the messengers on every single app, like TikTok <laughs> and Instagram. And this whole digital world that this whole digital world is their reality. And there's one school and I think I'm pronouncing this. It's five Scotland that learned to adapt with this. And basically they moved to an entirely new campus. And by moving to this new campus, they brought the digital world with them. So they included like all these like interactive display boards. And I think uh, Microsoft office and Scotland's digital learning platform, I think it's called glow. And so they basically took uh, the world that this new generation is living in the digital world. And they applied as much as they could. Um, and I even know some other schools, like they have their own like Facebook groups or like they have one of my uh, previous master teachers, she created an Instagram for her students. Uh, it was private and the only ones who would, you know, get access to it were the families. And so she was really trying to incorporate that whole social media and the whole, like in digital world to, to try and be, I guess, trying to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, 
incorporate a lot of technology um, in your classroom or even just in your lessons? I really do try to. I really, really do. Um, last year in the school that I was working in, different districts and everything, we actually were fortunate enough, even though it was sort of a, uh, the demographic was, um, how do I say this properly? Like lower income uh, demographic, we were very fortunate to be able to, at the school, have a 3D printer. And I encouraged wow. my kids to use that as frequently as possible, even though I had no idea how to use it. They knew how to figure it out and they were actually really good and they were teaching me a lot of things, uh, which was really amazing. Uh, but yeah, I just told them, you know, use this as much as you can, because realistically, the technology that I'm maybe using in my class and, and I use um, programs like Kahoot, kids love it. Um, Nearpod, if anybody's heard of that, yeah, I love Nearpod. Nearpod. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, I try and use sort of a lot of things digital. And even I, mine's very rudimentary compared to, you know, the 3D printer. But realistically, the jobs that they are going to be getting in the future that maybe don't even exist yet, they are going to require that knowledge base for the technology for from something as simple as, you know, knowing how to use your Chromebook really, really well um, and all the ins and outs of it to, you know, in elementary school. Now they're learning how to code, which is really interesting. I have no idea how to do that. I don't have no <laughs> idea how to teach it. I'm teaching myself how to teach it. Um, but it is important that I do so. Uh, it is important that I you learn how to use the 3D printer to then again teach it because these are going to get them ahead in the job market in the future. These are going to prepare them for jobs, again, that we don't know exist or that exist. And they're going to have that competitive edge to be able to say like, oh yeah, no, I'm really comfortable with technology because I've used it my whole school career. And I think it'll just thrust them forward, which is what we need to do. We need to prepare them for a future that we don't know yet. Um, but yeah, I, I love Nearpod. I love Kahoot. Uh, um, I love even just like docu cameras, And I, I I'm assuming mm. it's the same sort of thing where you have, even if I'm writing on physical paper or giving an example and I have an iPad or, um, yeah, a docu-cam, you know, connected to the projector, as much as that's not really crazy technology, um, even getting them to set it up for me and just knowing what connects where, those are such basic skills that I think we take for granted. But the kids that don't know them, don't know what a USB or a USB-C is, they're <laughs> really behind and they're going to be behind in the job market if they do not know this basic stuff. So yeah, I try and throw in as much as I can, as often as I can and involve them in it as well. Uh, new pod is the best. My, my favorite feature on that is uh, the virtual food trip, like the 360 and my, my kids get, yeah. oh, I love that part. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> and speaking of USB, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't too long ago that we had the, the floppy disk. Yes. <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, yeah, and then even USB, we have like these different, the new thing is what, USB-C. And so yes. yeah, things are constantly changing. And um, I, I know Gen Z has to do a lot of their communication with their peers online again, like social media and every different form of like channel to communicate on the smartphones and mobile devices. And then that's how they absorb the information. So the new generation, they're expecting a similar experience in the classroom. Uh, again, that, that's cool in uh, five Scotland. They, they were able to um, take that and, and, and apply it. And so for me, I can't believe I'm saying this, like old school technology, like whiteboards and, and chalkboards and, and the yeah. projectors. Uh, 
So that school in Scotland was able to take the the new, I guess, the new tech and have digital interactions. So now they have, instead of just regular whiteboards, they have these interactive digital whiteboards instead yeah. of just a retro projector. It's an interactive projector, touch, big TV touchscreen or yeah. these throw projectors. And all of a sudden it's interactive and you have that collaboration aspect of it. Like one student could be writing something on the interactive whiteboard and all of a sudden it gets presented without having to hook up any wires mm-hmm. to the to the big projector. Yep. Um, and same thing, the, the teacher could uh, send a PowerPoint or show something on all the students' screen if you, you know, if they if they wanted to, just with a click of a button. Yep. And that way, not everyone has to look up at the screen. They could also be looking at their Chromebook or whatever device they have. Right. Um, and I know that you know there's that it's kind of like a networking in the classroom where everyone has access to the same stuff, and I could send a message to my peer next to me, or I could yeah, even if you know even the days that I might be absent or there might be a substitute, I can still communicate immediately with these students, even though mm-hmm. I'm not in the classroom. And yeah, I like that immediate feedback that you have not only with your students but the, the students with their peers. Yeah. Um, even for me, like. Uh, you know, even the notebook, there's a a thing I really like that I've been really pushing forward. Um, I've been trying to write a grant, but it's these, uh, they're called these rocket books. It's just these digital notebooks. So, yeah. And so (laughs) I really like that. Uh, it still gets that feel like the writing with a pen, like you're writing on paper, but then it's digital. You take a picture and then it gets uploaded to whatever cloud storage you use. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I still like writing lesson plans on, on paper um, and then uploading it because I do like it that if I change it one place then I guess change everywhere altogether like mm-hmm. like some kind of motherboard um, and again going back to the example if I am absent and I don't have to worry about giving maybe I printed an outdated uh, lesson plan or there's an error like, stuff can just be immediately uh, accessed because it's all continuously updating do you do your lesson plan like with digital or are you like writing on paper or how do you do it? I'm going to admit a huge teacher faux pas in that all my lesson plans are in my head. I actually don't have any um, specific written down, written out uh, detailed lesson plans where, you know, I'm writing the curricular competency and all these other things. I don't know what the language necessarily is in the States versus here uh, in Canada. Um, but, you know, all the things, all the goals are the main ideas that I need to hit uh, and all the strategies that I'm going to use to get there and all my accommodations for um, my differentiated students and so on and so forth. I don't have that on written down anywhere. <laughs> it's just all floating in my head and I, it might make me feel better to write it down, but then I often forget it, even if I do write it down. Um, so to have it in my mind, I know what I'm doing three weeks from next Tuesday. It's in my brain. Uh, and I try and design all my lessons. Um, and when I'm sort of thinking them up in my head and I'm, I'm you know, looking at different resources, or trying them out or whatever it is, I do try and make all my lessons super um, accessible and that I don't have to necessarily change anything, if at all, Um, very minor things in order for 
all my students of all different abilities to be able to participate and succeed in that lesson or in that task, whatever it might be. Um, I do try and design everything um, sort of under the framework of universal design for learning where kids are able to access and succeed in whatever task in whatever way suits them. So if they're really good at writing, they can write. That's fine. If they're really good at a podcast, for example, like if you were a student right now, maybe you'd like to do a podcast about whatever task it is, whatever. Um, if we're talking about history or whatever, maybe you're doing a podcast or whatever it is. Maybe you're really good at creating art um, and you can talk about your art for hours. Great. Then do that. You know, as long as my kids can show me that they've understood the task or whatever it was that they're learning, fine by me. And again, that's all in in my head. The only thing that I really have on paper is my assessment. That's it. Uh, you and I got to catch up at a different time. You got to tell me your secret. <laughs> uh, yeah. So going back to uh, the generation of teachers, um, yeah, the new teachers might have a easier time incorporating technology because mm -hmm. they just finished their teacher credential, teacher preparation program. And so they've been exposed to that. Uh, and this again leads me to, you know, if I were a principal, I would definitely recommend mixing the veteran and your teachers together, and, you know, especially in the same grade level. So not having all the old, you know, all the veteran teachers be only upper grades. I would mix, uh, you know, the newer and the veteran teachers in the same grade level. Um, because it's not just enough introducing new tech in the school, but it's also training. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you just can't expect me to, like, all right, here's uh, the newest platform or the newest uh, whatever it may be, Squalogy or Class Tag or Class Dojo, whatever it may be. You also got to teach them and you got to play to the strengths of all the teachers. And kind of like a two-way mentorship where both generations teach yeah. each other something new. And um, I know there's a, you know, there's certain stereotypes, um, you know, how you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you know, you know. Depends on the dog's disposition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so one way of working or learning might be to have, um, you know, one way of teaching or learning might not work for the whole class. Um, like, like for me, like when I teach my students, like a new tech, uh, you know, some students pick it up easier than the other ones. And so the same thing when you're trying to teach new tech to the teachers and, um, I, I, with the students when incorporating technology, I know I said this earlier, having multiple channels, um, for them to communicate with each other or show their, whether their mastery, I also have multiple channels for the families as well, especially since we're doing digital distance learning. And so I'm not easily accessible or even just to my teachers, they can't just come next to her and be like, Hey, I need help with this. Or I can't just go to the office and say, Oh, can you print this out? Can you send this out to the family? I try and have multiple channels and try and incorporate as much technology as I can from my classroom um, and try and be available as much as I can. Um, and since I, I teach special ed, I use technology to have students show their mastery in the best way that they have, whether it's writing, mm -hmm. whether it's images, whether it's uh, video matching, whatever it may be. 100%, and yeah. yeah. And I, I try and do this so that they feel comfortable. Cause I, you know, again, if I, you know, if I'm even as a teacher, if, if I, you give me this new tech and like, here you go, good luck. Like, obviously <laughs> I'm going to have to read up on the manual. I'm going to do some kind of professional development. Same thing with the students. I'm not just going to be like, all right, you'll know how to do this, right? All right. 
So go ahead and finish it. I, I try and make it so that they're comfortable. And I, and I do make adjustments on the fly and I try and adapt the content to, to fit more their learning style, whether some students need, uh, you know, text to speech, or even just some students need like the animation so their eyes can follow along. Um, you know, the words will be highlighted or like it'll be a little character jumping from word to word so their eyes can still follow along where in the passage they're reading. Um, and so I, I, I do adjust it and then I have some students that might be better kinesthetic learners. Uh, you know, some students do better with Chromebooks or with a tablet, that touchscreen. So I really try and change technology to meet the the learning needs of my students. Do, do you do something similar like that with technology? Yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate that almost technology does it for us. And a lot of the, the, the programs created are super inclusive, which is fantastic. There's voice to text and, um, you know, the other vice versa as well, where you can um, hear a passage be um, read out loud to you if it's already written as well. If you're not the best reader, fantastic. Um, there are so many different resources out there and different programs uh, that are already built into our technology as well, like our Chromebooks or MacBooks, whatever it is that we're using. Um, they have just incredible advances that a lot of them we're not even aware of and I'm not even aware of that I'm still learning. And, and it's usually the kids who um, have those needs that figure it out or know about it already, which is amazing. And they actually get to teach me. And, uh, and I think that's just... I don't know. I think it's, it's amazing that we really don't have to do a lot of the work. It is there for us. The work, I mean, I suppose the work that we need to do is just become aware of it and then know how to use it effectively in our classroom. So that's where I would say, yeah, I think we're lucky in that sense. I don't know. Yeah. I'm always learning new things from the kids. Yeah. Um, so take advantage of that. And the last thing I do want to say about technology is it's great. It's you know, lots of you know advances and it's great for our society, but I don't, don't always want to rely on it. Um, it does fail me sometimes. Like <laughs> the most basic thing is the internet connection will fail me. The worst. Um, <laughs> wires might not work. So uh, I don't want to have my kiddos glued to a screen, mm-hmm. especially since we're doing distance learning. I try and do 50, 50 where the first half of the lesson will be hands-on with whiteboards or really our manipulatives or drawing, coloring, cutting, etc. Um, and then the second half is where I incorporate the ed tech and you're a big fan of Nearpod. I use Nearpod for the second half. <laughs> and so I, I do the Nearpod, the, I don't know if you use the, the time to climb. So I, I my kids yes, love that, the time yeah. to climb. And so that's my informal assessment. So whatever yep. I taught them in the first half with the hands-on, like a draw a circle, whatever, draw, draw a number line, what's next, how much is a dollar, whatever it is that we use for the first half of the hands-on. Then the second half is where I assess them. Like I'll show my $1 bill and then be like, all right, how much, you know, like $2, mm-hmm. $5, whatever. Right. Or I'll show them like a 3D object and be like, where's the sphere? And so whatever we did, I assess them with the, the ed tech. Um, because again, I, I don't want to have too much screen time that I know, you know the studies show that maybe too much screen time uh, leads to an increased likelihood of diagnosis for ADHD. And the most recent numbers I that I was able to catch up on is roughly 11% of the Gen Z have been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, but do you know, like maybe any negative effects of maybe having just way too much screen time? I can really only 
we think of super, you know, biological, for lack of a better word, um, effects in that, you know, the blue light glasses are becoming very popular mm-hmm. because the strain yeah. on the eyes, for sure. That's been scientifically proven. We know that. Great. Let's adapt. Let's change our technology. And it already has on our phones where we have, you know, night mode, um, <laughs> right? On our, on our computers, you can enable that feature as well on a lot. Like there are changes um, and, and there will continue to be changes for these negative effects, I think, um, as soon as we figure them out. But we don't know all of them, obviously, right now. And as you said, with um, 11% being diagnosed having ADHD, I don't necessarily think that's a problem or problematic because that's just the way it is then. Um, And that is, you know, how children are going to exist or how adults are going to exist and how is our world. Maybe the problem is like, okay, now how is our world going to adapt or change in order to accommodate this new normal? Right. And how are older generations who um, haven't interacted maybe as much with um, kids or other humans with ADHD, how do we create inclusive spaces in our workplaces um, as adults in order to, in universities too, in order to not just accommodate that, but make it part of the norm. And, you know, I don't know how to kind of go further than that, but yeah, just it's, it's going to be what it is and it's how we're going to react. So that's what I would say. I mean, for negative effects, I don't know if I would call them negative. They're just effects and it is what it is and it's how we deal with them. Yeah. I've definitely heard that yeah, even the argument that, you know, autism might be the new normal. And so it just might, you know, this might be the way that we live in, um, in the future, just because we're exposed to all this information. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, as, as we wrap this episode up, is there, <laughs> Any advice that you would give to new teachers or those even thinking about entering the educational field? You really have to want to do it. You know, don't enter because you think it's an easy thing to do or because you get a really good pension. Not to say that that shouldn't be a reason (laughs) that you consider um, because we are very fortunate. However, you have to know that you are working with the next generation and every day you have to get up uh, and do really difficult and uncomfortable work. Um, And that's going to challenge you every single day. It's going to challenge you and you're going to have to learn and be learning and unlearning and relearning for the rest of your life. And you have to be open and okay to do that. Um, And you're going to meet so many different amazing little humans along your way. Um, And you might not be able to reap the benefits or see the reward right away. And it might not come for five years, for 10 years. But as soon as a student comes back and says, you changed my life because you said this one sentence when I was 13 years old uh, and now I'm CEO or whatever, you know, the, the rewards might not and probably won't feel immediate. Um, but you have to know that you want to wake up every day and do that, you know, and, and be okay with not having those results immediately. But if that's not the kind of person you are um, and you're just looking to share wisdom, maybe go into university professing or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, just, just make sure you're really committed uh, to learning and, and just self-learning and doing that for these little humans and for the next generation. So that was kind of my little token of wisdom. But yeah. yeah well, thank you so much. And you know, thank you. Said, this has been another episode of Teachers Care Society. I want to say thank you to our guests, Adriana, and most importantly, 
you, the listeners. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.